there's supposed to be some idea that if you are capable of like arguing for and then arguing against something, that means that you have like a better grasp of the truth. And if you can temper, even if it's temporarily occupy like a position of neutrality and objectivity, that is supposed to make you like a better critical thinker. And then you have organizations that claim to be unbiased, like the BBC, when if you look at the BBC's homepage, that does not mean that you're getting an unbiased view of what's happening in the UK. And it doesn't matter if you look at the New York Times or the Huffington Post or like whatever it is that you're looking at. It just, it's not possible. And to claim that it is possible to be unbiased, I think is, is colonial and it's Western exceptionalism. Salams, peace and blessings. You're listening to Breaking Binaries Season 2 with me, your host, Sahima Manzil Khan, known online as the Brown Hijabi. As a society, we're obsessed with explaining our world through the use of straightforward opposing categories. So, good or bad, moderate or radical, pretty or ugly, victim or villain, the list goes on. All these sets of binaries, though, tend to be quite superficial, and they hide the real complexities, the politics and the nuances of how we've been encouraged to think. Following from the conversations of season one, every episode this series, I'll be sitting down with a different friend to break down, break apart, and interrogate a different binary and see how doing so helps us think more critically about ourselves and our world, and therefore, how we transform it. In this episode, I explored the binary of fake news and truth with Mariam Jamila. Mariam is a writer and researcher with a background in academia, working in researching trauma, Islamophobia and power structures. She's recently started working for The Canary as an investigative journalist, and her work can also be found via her Twitter handle, at Yamatron. The concepts we discussed this week were obviously far bigger than an episode of a podcast can account for. Truth is bigger than any of us, (laughs) I think. Uh, But fake news is also pretty complicated. So we did our best, we couldn't cover everything, um, but I hope that you can take something from this week and I hope the conversation and the questions raised are useful to you. Assalamu alaikum, Mariam, how are you? Wa alaikum salam, I'm good, thank you. Happy to be here. <laughs> I'm really happy to have you. Um, I feel like I always start my, the episodes are really weird, like tone where I'm like um, (laughs) hey yeah but I am really happy that you're here and um I've been yeah I'd been interested to know what binary you wanted to break because I think with some people I've approached people being like oh this is something that you know you're obviously always talking about or whatever and please can you help me break this down but I just I just really wanted to do an episode with you and I was just like what binary would you like to break um and so what you've chosen uh, I'll give a little intro is um fake news and truth so I think there's a lot in that actually and once you open that kind of worms I was like actually there's so much more than just like the news that we see online or the news we see in the media because it also is linked to things around objective truth and what we see is like real or not real or even like what we learn at school what's seen as subjective and objective and when we learn to write essays and all these kinds of things and our even in our personal conversations so I think let's just jump straight in and I'll start by asking you I guess what like prompted you to want to do this as a binary um what's yeah where are these thoughts coming from around fake news and truth how are we defining these ideas I think it's something which 
probably its most recent version is the amount of times that Donald Trump says it. And I have been kind of seeing how individuals, but also like news media organizations react to that. And I've found that incredibly frustrating. In what sense? So Trump's initial usage, I feel like it was when he maybe like right as he was inaugurated and he went on those rants about CNN is fake news and he listens to Fox News all the time, but he claims that he doesn't. And I feel like it started this um, really like panicked response in the media. And I saw like BuzzFeed and The Guardian and BBC, like these big organizations were really rattled by it. And were like, we need to confront fake news and we need to have better journalism than ever if we're going to combat Donald Trump. And like now we we can see that like that combating hasn't really happened in a way that is, has been sustained or effective. And I think that I've seen all of those uh, news orgs that I mentioned will have something at the bottom of their articles that says uh, it's like a read more section or there'll be um, we're combating fake news by having you read more or read from other um, sites that you wouldn't necessarily go to. And I think that's been a lot of like the social media discourse, this idea that you should create your social media bubble uh, and burst it by following people that you disagree with or people that you wouldn't normally think to follow. And I feel like that is actually a really pernicious thing because in doing that, you're kind of keeping the conversation on the terms of people like Donald Trump. Because in saying, in in creating this, this like myth around fake news or this culture around fake news, Trump set the terms of the conversation to imply that if there is some kind of fake news, news that criticizes him in some way and is therefore fake, there also has to be some kind of good news that sees him for who he really is, as he would think. And I think that in having that initial reaction from from various journalists that how are we going to combat fake news, all of these problems with like technology and social media sites like Facebook and Twitter and their role in Trump's sort of circus of lies uh, has kind of coalesced into this really bizarre discourse that I see playing out in a way that suggests that, oh, we need to combat fake news when like actually... I don't think that's the best way to go around solving whatever the problem is at the heart of this, this binary. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it the way it's talked about, it's like fake news is always coming from somewhere else. So there's no, no one is producing fake news, but everyone's worried about it. Do you know what I mean? So because no one's putting their hand up and saying, oh, yes, we did put out fake news. Um, and so you're right, it becomes this thing that really just depends how, who's talking about it. They get to define what fake is and isn't. And I guess that feels like something quite important here. Like who defines what's fake and what's real when it comes to something as important as news, which realistically is any and everything, right? It's what we decide is important. It's what we decide is worth, you know, BBC can decide what's worth telling us as an important um, piece of information to have today. Do you feel like that there's something in there as well about like fake itself as a concept that news can be fake or real? Yeah. Yeah, um, 
Because the term itself implies that there's some kind of like nefarious conspiracy here to um, take down Donald Trump from the inside, like the deep fakes and the QAnon conspiracies and all that kind of stuff. When fake news as a term doesn't make sense. Like those words, I feel like have no business being together with one another because it's, I feel like fake news as a term has its currency socially based on what people think is the opposite of fake news. So like, where is the truth, the little, you know, the little nugget of truth. And I think that little nugget of truth is like present in so many different spheres of like how people think and why people think. So for example, I did an English lit undergrad and I think the point of the degree was to like teach you how to think critically and the thing that was drilled into us constantly was how to write in an academic and critical way and I feel like this is basically the principle in British education of like that's what you want at GCSE, A-level university is to be able to write an essay where you have an argument and then you defend the argument and I think this is another one of those situations where truth and fake news is something that manifests in different ways. So in order to have an argument that you defend, the, you you must believe it's true in some way, and then you defend the truth that you've come up with, whatever that is. But I feel like that speaks more to Western epistemology as like as a universalizing or totalizing knowledge that thinks it can conquer, that thinks it can hold a truth about something and wrap it around what we would then call information or fact or truth. And I feel like that is what um, Trump is tapping into. And that's like the whole strategy to kind of frame it in this way uh, makes a really complicated conversation very flat when it's not factual. So it sounds like what you're saying is like prior to actually there existing any information itself, there's already a decision around like what types of information will be uh, valued or put forward as the ones that we're going to deem to be true, to be more objective, to be neutral. And I think it's interesting what you were saying about your experience of university and academia, because I think uh, I studied history, which I think those those ideas of truth and and uh, fake news or whatever are, are obviously really evident there too. And when you're writing an essay and you're being asked, there's usually this idea as well of like two um, equally this you know that kind of idea of like argue both points and then reach a conclusion. So there's always this idea that there's like um, you know a pro and a con. Like every piece, every piece of information has a sort of neutral value in of itself. So you could have an essay about slavery and you need to write the pros, the cons, and reach conclusion or colonialism, pros, conclusion. And I think there's something about that as well that doesn't create space to kind of if you brought in, say, a personal example, or if you brought in a kind of an opinion about injustice or that we can't talk about these things in a neutral way, that would be seen as a source of subjectivity and your your kind of um contaminating like the neutrality of the situation with your subjectivity and so I think there's something there as well about like what's true is what's like depersonalized which nothing can be so we're pretending that it's like not really linked to anybody's particular politics or like you know ideas of what's real what's not who's human who's not and then you are bringing in what's subjective or i.e what's not quite true it's like a it's like a you know 20% true kind of thing. I don't know. There just becomes to be this 
this really dangerous thing, which I think then translates to what you're talking about with the news, where it's then like, you know, we're going to interview different people and these sorts of, these are just opinions, like they're not the truth. Uh, but the real truth is like, you know, maybe what the institution decides or what, you know, Donald Trump decides or what the government decides. And I think that works to then uphold those hierarchies that historically have also existed. That, that's something that I see. Absolutely. And I think that there's supposed to be some idea that if you are capable of like arguing for and then arguing against something, that means that you have like a better grasp of the truth. And if you can temper, even if it's temporarily occupy like a position of neutrality and objectivity, that is supposed to make you like a better critical thinker. And then you have organizations that claim to be unbiased, like the BBC, when if you look at the BBC's homepage, that does not mean that you're getting an unbiased view of uh, what's happening in the UK. And it doesn't matter if you look at the New York Times or the Huffington Post or like whatever it is that you're looking at. It just, it's not possible. And to claim that it is possible to be unbiased, I think is like a, it's colonial and it's Western exceptionalism. I think that's a really important point because if I can just jump in there, I think that, this idea that what you're saying is not that, um, I guess there's a differentiation between sort of saying everything is equally as true and untrue. Do you know what I mean? Rather than saying like, oh, what you're saying is not 100% true. It's more like this idea, at least I think that, well, nothing is 100% true. To give an example of what I mean, I remember um, when I was studying history, I wanted to do uh, like an oral history project about um, Pakistani women's experiences migrating to the UK in the 1960s. So I was like, you know, this is really uh, the, an important source of information because, you know, the archives don't really say much about these women's lives, et cetera, et cetera. And what I was told was if you're going to do oral history, it's going to be very subjective because it's going to be people's memories. It's going to be people's, you know, ideas of what happened uh, from the people themselves. So there was this idea that those women themselves who experienced something uh, would be bringing too much of their own sort of biases, perception to the history of their lives, as opposed to, say, um, an ethnographer or a sociologist who in the 1960s, you know, who had very racist assumptions about these women's lives, who wrote randomly for something they'd been commissioned by, like, you know, um, Commission of Racial Equality or some sort of local council board. And that sitting in an archive is deemed to just have somehow be free of the subjectivity of the person who wrote it. You know, there's no context on that document. But these women and their ideas about their own lives, uh, you know, are absolutely or inherently suspicious kind of um, artifacts of the past. And so my my sort of thoughts on that was always, well, why, what makes one piece of this more subjective than the other? Like that archival piece of evidence is just as subjective. So there seems to be something here also then about like, you know, what we think truth to be, like, what do we believe truth to be? And I think that seems surprisingly contested. Yeah, I think... Um... This is maybe best explained with another example. So I, when I was thinking about what we should talk about, because we're talking about something that is so totalizing and universal, like every human has some manner of experience with what is true and what is untrue or lies or fake or whatever it is. I was thinking about like film and TV and fiction and representational politics I suppose because I think that there's like a discourse of authenticity whether we're talking about like food and tv so like uh you know for better or for worse the drive to have something uh 
that makes people feel seen, something that represents who they, the truth of who they are. So one of my favorite, favorite books ever is Lucy by Jamaica Kincaid. And it is, um, I think it's like semi-autobiographical and it's partly based on her own childhood and her relationship with her mother. And there's a really, really great article where she's in conversation with Brittany Buckner and they're talking about what is the best environment to be creative, to write about yourself, to write about your experiences and your life and create good art. And I would highly, highly recommend this conversation. And at the end, they they talk about truth in art. So the quote goes, um, you must persevere. And as long as you are true, the truth is your best friend, just the truth. And the, tr- the truth, incidentally, is multifaceted. A lie is one thing, one single thing. And I... I think I read that for the first time maybe like five years ago and it's just been bouncing around in my head since then because I think that that kind of gets to the heart of what we're talking about a lot. So when there's a new TV show or a new film that is for minorities in some way or by minorities or depicts minorities, it starts the same conversations again and again about representation and politics. And I think Kincaid's quote and her approach to her writing and her own life and the truth of her life as it appears in her work is a really um, fruitful thing to think about because I feel like using that quote then if um, someone is able to tell a lie if there is some fake news or something by definition you can point at it in order to identify that it's fake you need to know what you think the truth is, whereas it's much harder to identify the truth as something that is authentic or real in some kind of way um, to be able to point at it and say this thing is true because then it then I feel like the conversation shifts into like truth or who, and I feel like that sort of brings us down another interesting path as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, a a really present example that I can think of that I feel like reflects what you're saying is this whole conversation. I mean, it's just a really silly thing of uh, the Churchill statue and like Churchill's Zionization. So it's like, and so there's like this one truth that we've been told, which is that Churchill was a great man, great leader of this country, savior, you know, war hero, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And if you contest that truth, it's like, see, it's obviously really threatening because it's contesting something much bigger, like a bigger narrative. But I think what you said about like just pointing out the lie in of itself is where the power lies. I think we've seen that to be very true because as soon as you say, actually, this is a lie because of this piece of information, you know, whether that's the Bengal famine, whether that's like anti-suffrage, whether that's to do with the war, colonialism, slavery, any of those things. There's all these different truths that contest that one lie. And it is the lie that somehow, I mean, not somehow, I guess, deliberately has the most power behind that narrative, that the the false narrative um, is the one that seems to have the most power behind it. Does that reflect what you were sort of saying? Yeah, yeah. Because I think then um, when a lie is told, the lie becomes tangible in some kind of way. And with the Churchill example, that lie about like who he is and what he should mean to Britain over generations of people, the repetition of the lie is also what gives it its power. So then when people are in a position to talk about the Bengal famine and to talk about the things that he openly said and did, 
and what that means for the legacy of Britain, I feel like then what minoritized people are being asked to do is to be able to put their entire self aside in order to continue to repeat the lies, um, because then it becomes even harder to counteract that with truth. And I think the same thing happened like with the Edward Colston statue. Taking the statue down is seen as violent to racists, because they see it as an act of like destruction of public property and a destruction of public memory. But to the people who are taking it down, it's an act of truth. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. To like combat the lie. And I think that like maybe maybe it's the repetition in all of this like fake news discourse that is the 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 factor that changes things in terms of like truth telling and like freedom and justice and things like that. Yeah. Well, I guess it's kind of like, I mean, let's come back around to what you were saying about film and TV, because what you've just said reminds me of something that um, at the end of the Truman show. So I remember watching Truman show a lot when I was younger, we watched it recently, but um, so, you know, this man Truman who turns out his life, his entire life has been a reality TV show, but he doesn't realize he thinks he lives in the normal world. Um, but something that the maker of the TV show says is that, you know, somebody asks, why has he never questioned that this reality? And he says, well, because we never question what is kind of presented to us as reality and as true. And I think that is really interesting because it does feel really applicable to what you're, you're saying there as well. Um, so I wondered if I can just use that as a prompt to bring you back to what you said, because I think we, I took you away on a tangent. Um, and I wondered if there's any of those examples you wanted to go into that kind of shed some light on I guess what this binary is hiding, like you've already said a lot about what is hiding, but. Yeah. So I've been watching like a lot of um, horror film and TV shows. And um, I just, I love talking about ghosts and time. I think it's so interesting. And I think that ghosts are like a really useful way of talking about difficult concepts that are to do with like power and symbolism. And I think coloniality lends itself really well to ghostliness. So I think that when you're watching a horror film or something that is fantasy or sci-fi in some kind of way, I feel like the thing that you're watching tells you something about who the creators imagine to occupy space in the present or the future or the past. And the useful thing about ghosts is when they are conjured, the appearance of the ghost tells you that something something has gone wrong, whether it's something in the past that needs to be fixed in order for the present to move to the future. So I feel like if we think of colonialism as a ghost in this TV show that is our Truman Show or our real life, the specter of colonialism is something which I think is only seen by certain people, right? Not everyone can see the ghost that is colonialism. And we're here to be talking about the binary of like what is true and what is fake to think about what it's hiding. In this very extended metaphor, the thing that is hiding is the ghost. So like, why is it that the people who conjured the ghost, whiteness, white supremacy or colonialism, the thing that did the harm, the thing that means that something has gone wrong is the thing that can't see the ghost, so I feel like sometimes ghosts can be an expression of guilt. And I think that's the case in, for example, Toni Morrison's Beloved, where it's this treatment of ghostliness and slavery and guilt. So when we have these discussions about 
Churchill and Colston and who these people were, the discussion really is who is Britain as a nation? Does Britain have a guilty conscience? And I think that that's, that's our past, our past. Um, and those ghosts, those specters of coloniality um, are specters of death and violence and genocide. And in this horror film that we're in, maybe this horror Truman show, we're trying to imagine a future where those people are recognized as ghosts, as specters of some kind. In order to do that, we need to know who those people, who is Britain really? Who are these ghosts? Who is conjuring them? Who is scared by them? Who is not scared by them? And I think the fact that so much of this discourse, when something happens, when there's like when the country has a race panic, uh, what for like whatever reason it's happened, um, I think ghosts in a very strange way can be a useful way to think about who is scared, what are they scared of, what can they see that other people can't see. Um, because I feel like the Edward Colston in particular was something which um, it was so symbolically powerful. And it's powerful in an intangible way. And you can see people's understandings of who they think we are as a society playing out in the media. But it plays out via like discourse and content. And it's really complicated and it's hard to grasp hold of, which is another reason I think ghosts are useful. Because I think when you watch horror and sci-fi, it's a projection of the future. It's an imagination of the future in some kind of way. That's so interesting. I, I think you did such a good job there of like connecting all the things that we've spoken about in, in this signifier of the ghost, which I think, and I know you've talked about it before, but I do think it's really, really fascinating. And I also think what you said that stood out to me kind of quite starkly was this idea that the people who have, or the thing that has conjured the ghost is the thing that also doesn't see the ghost. Um, and I think there's something really... I don't know, there's something quite like, <laughs> if that feels hard, like that feels what's kind of the centre of a lot of the kind of politics we see online and elsewhere. And it's like, this is what happened. No, it's not. This is what happened. And it's just a back and forth, back and forth. Because as you say, this ghost is just, you know, either you see it or you're not seeing it. And I think that feels really, I don't know. Yeah, that feels at the heart of a lot of things. But also I think just when you were talking about the ghost, there's something else that that brings up for me, which is around like, even if we take ghosts like more literally, more literally in the sense of like the supernatural, right? And like the, I guess what it makes me think about is that there are types of knowledge or types of beliefs that are already marked by, you know, Western categories of knowledge to not be real in of themselves. So whether that's religious knowledge, for example. And so secularism becomes this like the only really objective and true way of knowing something but religious knowledge um it is not it is subjective it's prone to being fake it's closer to being you know superstition and so i think yeah i don't know even that in of itself made me think about the ways that there is embarrassment i think around people who believe in actual ghosts as well right and i open that up to say that like this is this is also connected i think to that idea of like whose whose truth gets to be the truth i mean what is the central issue in deeming these two things to be opposite? Is it, as we've said so far, just that like there's so many truths, like truth is multifaceted, um, the lie, there is one lie, or is it that, you know, 
there is no such thing as these these things in the first place or like I, I don't know I guess I'm kind of wondering what is it that makes these things not oppositional yeah I think the in in forming a relationship between uh what is the truth and what is a lie it's what we talked about at the beginning with Donald Trump and his and the fake news that in calling something fake news Trump has controlled the boundaries of the debate so in connecting at the center of this discussion truth with lie um it's the connection itself which controls the terms of the of the conversation and where we go with it because we've spanned colonialism and religion and spirituality and more tangible examples like film and tv and books which shows you that like that is it takes a lot to be able to um confront this incredibly expansive thing and i think the relationship between what is true and what is a lie just to go back to jamaican jamaica kincaid is that the thing that's painful about truth is when it tries to tell you about yourself so to use one example um i was thinking about archie punjabi who plays kalinda in the good wife and she has been in a bunch of films that fall into the realm of like representational politics so she was she was the sister in bend it like beckham and she um was in the film how oh, have i forgotten the name of this film i wrote about this film <laughs> what is yasmin she was in yasmin and um yasmin i find to be like a very painful film to watch because it's everything that like it's like if the daily mail made a film <laughs> basically and so she like she, you know, she takes a, her scarf off at the side of a road and she puts a pair of jeans on and 9-11 happens in the middle of the film. And it happens in the way that, like, me and you would expect it to happen. It's kind of like your worst fears in this, contained in this one film. Like, not to hate Anandji Punjabi, she's great. <laughs> and um, the thing about that is the figure that she plays, the figure of, like, this oppressed Muslim woman who is at odds and is having, like, a clash of civilizations is... I I see it as a lie, and it's a lie that is repeated in so many ways, but that one single thing takes many forms. The reason that I think the conversation around this depiction of Muslim women can sometimes be quite flat or um, not very nuanced is because of the relationship between truth and lie. Because there's an implication that if you say, this representation is a lie, that's not what it's like to be a Muslim woman, the next question then becomes, okay, well, what is it like to be a Muslim woman? And I think that's when you get caught up in in trying to explain yourself and to account for your existence and to explain yourself away. So I feel like in that example, it's the relationship between truth and lie. And I feel like maybe it's more productive or fruitful for us to think about it in terms of like what are other lies that we've seen about muslim muslim women how do we imagine better because i mean i don't think that i could turn around tomorrow and like write a different screenplay about what i think is actually like to be a muslim woman because the terms of the debate are messed up they're not like a good place to start from yeah Definitely. I think that's such a good example because it reminds me also of um, 
something that Toni Morrison said um, about, you know, she. I think it's this quote where she sort of says, they will tell you that you have no history, so you spend 20 years proving that you do. They say that your skulls are too small, so you spend 20 years proving that they're not. And I think, and you know, she says, and in that time, 40 years have gone by, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what, what you're getting at there, or at least what I take from that is that in this whole connection between truth and lies as well, fake news and real news, is that you're constantly having to respond to the lie. And so you build your life up, uh, kind of defining yourself in terms of the lie, even as much as you're trying to say the lie is a lie. And that whole thing about, you know, what would true representation of a Muslim woman look like? I think that's such a, that, you know, that's, and I think as somebody who sort of, uh, it does like performance work or spoken word kind of stuff, I think this is something that I've grappled with a lot where it's like, people want you to represent something close to closer to and they'll say it like closer to the truth you know the authentic experience of being a Muslim woman and and I, I, like you you know I think that's such a big burden for anybody to carry because we know the I think the point is not that there is a truth but that we are multifaceted that it's as messy and complex and we don't want you know uh one it's not yeah it's not one or the other the lie or the truth it's just like what I mean in a world where there was every single TV show had Muslim women in it, then it would be a completely different conversation, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be, you know, this conversation. So that then brings me to the point about, well, what's going on behind this binary, right? Because it's clear that it's constructed, it's hiding things, it's obscuring the reality. And it seems like in an example like that, the reason it exists is to, I suppose, oppress, like it upholds the, uh, the oppression of Muslim people and Muslim women in particular, who then have to I would say in my own experience, you know, you have to spend your life kind of doing this work that doesn't at all contribute to, you know, your liberation, your safety or justice. And in that way, obscures and kind of deflects from work that would essentially change the world. Is this how I would put it? And so, I mean, what, to your mind, like what, why does this binary exist? And I mean, we can, we can, maybe we can begin with the actual binary that we've started in terms of like fake news and, and truth. Um, like it sounds like that's something that has benefited, you know, Donald Trump or other governments. Um, and, and how is that so? And what is the role of news media then? And like, how come news media doesn't manage to sort of, I don't know, d- divest from this idea of fake news? I suppose because the news media is engaging um, on the level that we mentioned where it's saying, okay, we've been accused of peddling fake news. Let's peddle true news. There's no such thing. If there's no such thing as fake news, which I don't think there is, there's also no such thing as true news. And I think that um, the idea that you can combat it in that way, or if you, if you, if only you read more widely, if only you were better at, um, identifying fake news, then we, there wouldn't be all of these people that are misinformed when I don't know that people are misinformed. I think, you know, we live in the age of information. We live in an age where it's more possible than ever to have access to more information. But clearly, access doesn't mean that everyone is suddenly incredibly well-informed Right. And, and I think that's linked to that idea that like ignorance is the reason, sorry, you were probably about to say that, but ignorance is like the reason for racism or oppression or whatever. And yeah, I think that's such a good example of how we have all this information and it seems to be, in fact, the opposite, that it's upholding those oppressions. Yeah, because then the news organization is going to reflect the values that it holds. It's going to reflect the values of what it thinks to be true. So pre- 
the popularity of phrases like fake news, if that organization is still white supremacist and capitalist, it will continue to be so even while it thinks it's combating fake news. And I think that it becomes a distraction then to say, oh, we're going to fight fake news. That becomes a distraction from the, the white supremacy and the capitalism and as a way to disguise the truth of their values and what they're trying to do. Because what they're trying to do is not only you know, give people news for the love of news or truth or integrity or justice or whatever. Like in in having this discussion about fake news, it allows people to think that it's about individual responsibility when I think it's also about social and collective responsibility. Um, and it becomes what we mentioned before about what 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 is Britain? What does British society think that it is? And if it can't accept these things about itself, where does that leave us in terms of how we speak to one another and the, the, the boundaries of the debates that we have? Yeah. And I think there's something here, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times about capitalism. And I think it's also interesting to think about, I was in an event recently, um, <laughs> undercover. I, was, I, did, I went in sort of under not my own name, but I just wanted to witness it. And um it was several of the kind of senior editors of uh, like Daily Mirror, Daily Express, um, but including BBC. And what was really fascinating was that that nobody kind of acknowledged at any point that, particularly with those like newspapers and tabloids, that there is somebody owns these papers, right? This is also a business model. This isn't a you know, like you said, it's not people just lo- we just love news and information, and we just want to share it with you. It's actually a there's, there's a transaction here that's happening. Somebody is making a profit, and somebody is buying something. And so I think, you know, that was one of the questions I wanted to raise was like, well, hang on, you're acting like this is a neutral space where you just like whatever information is important to share, you're sharing it. But there are shareholders that own your company, that there are people who make profit off your sales. So you want to sell papers. If you want to sell papers, you're going to tap into certain types of news currents that are profitable. You're not going to just think, oh, you know, you're not going to necessarily post, oh, let's, you know, we want accountability for hostile environment. That That's not going to be something that sells, except, except that what's interesting there is that, well, actually, there's a, there's a reality in which that could be what sells. But because I think the news media itself has cultivated an environment where what sells is hostility and what sells, I think, taps into what you said about what Britain believes itself to be. And so I think there's there's no coincidence for me between the fact that probably the people who own shares in these, you know, big companies and corporations are also people who historically and presently are invested in, whether materially or ideologically, that notion of Britain that is, you know, a civilizing force for good, a saving force, you know, no, nothing bad, basically. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I feel like capitalism feels like a really important force behind also fake news and truth. Mm. Yeah, because I think when we include capitalism in the conversation, it takes these very conceptual ideas and it gives them a materiality. So if we're talking about like accessibility of news and information and bursting your bubble and all of those kind of things that are supposed to combat fake news, um, there's material things that you need in order to do that. So like an internet connection, the space and the time are very difficult to come by in terms of money for like 
regular working class people, you need to be able to be earning enough that your so that your belly is full, that your kids' bellies are full, that you that you have the time to sit down and think about these ideas and to consume the news media in a sustained way. And in order for that to happen, there are things that can happen. And you could just as well combat fake news if that was what you wanted to do with a universal basic income or um, more funding for people that are unemployed, for people that are disabled, um, free breakfasts for kids that are going to school, free school meals, all of those things make information accessible. All of those things combat fake news. But in order for that combating to happen, you need to accept truths about the material conditions of the world. That's really interesting. Because I think that also proves, I suppose, the point that when fake news is about purely about like uh, information that has no material reflection or reality, it, I think that's why we're able to kind of say, oh, you know, racists exist because they're misinformed or, you know, whatever else, rather than ever kind of point to these material concerns that information both shapes and is like an outcome of. And I don't know that, yeah, that's a really interesting way of putting it that like, if you wanted to combat fake news, if you, if we even kind of want to, yeah, like go down that road, then it would involve like system change. Like you can't, what's the point of like, you know, I don't know, like censoring the internet. That's not the, that's that, that in of itself will play into like the truth of a state with ever increasing authoritarian powers. And I guess also something that I was thinking about when you were speaking is like, because you said something about internet connection, but it just got me thinking about like my own lack of knowledge about technology uh, and like sort of, you know, data surveillance and stuff. But I think that's relevant here because, you know, I mean, from my limited understanding, what I do know is that even like when we're talking about, because I know a lot of this conversation revolves around social media too. Um, and the kind of like, oh, the fight against social uh, fake news on social media. But I guess a big part of that is that, you know, again money is made by the sale of time and like our time online and so fake news is then again it's you know there's something there about like it's not just oh like some random people you know at the end of your road are just making memes and putting them online and this is like turning the world fascist (laughs) I think there's like no but I think sometimes that's like the implication that is made but it's like there's actually so many other forces at work that are you know, much less obvious. So it's a much less easy conclusion to come to. But I think that actually seem to be shaping things and whether you're connect, you know, that's connecting like elections or governments between India, Russia, America, whatever, like there is this, there is more going on than I think meets the eye. Yeah. And I think I find it so like at the same time, hilarious, but frustrating that um, people who are into their conspiracy theories that are like, you know, flat earthers or whatever, are so invested in these conspiracies. Or even the people who think that COVID is a hoax or some kind of gov- government conspiracy will put so much energy into creating spaces for themselves online where they can meet with other people who share their conspiracy. When like there's real legit, cons- like white supremacy is a conspiracy as in it's something that structures the world as you see it. And there are forces that control it and wield it in a particular way in order to control people's lives and hide it from you. Right. And people will not have that, but they will have the, Oh, the government is making you wear a mask. So you'll have to stand a bit 
far away from each other and that's the end of the conspiracy um, and I think, but I think there's also some, there's something really interesting in that about, because I th- I don't know, in my own experience, like this in, intrigue about conspiracy theories, like the ones you've mentioned, um, I feel like are also a result of like what happens when you deprive communities of knowledge that would actually, you know, lead to those material changes is that I think because you hide white supremacy so well, it becomes easier to believe in you know the Illuminati, it becomes easier to believe that you know masks are so because I, I think there's also a huge correlation between like you know communities where we do have this deprivation of knowledge, deliberate kind of elision of the truth, and then those kinds of conspiracy theories. And I don't think it's a case of you know, yeah, I think basically like the fault for that doesn't lie with people themselves necessarily. Absolutely, and the way that that's confronted is like that has to be part of the conversation when we're talking about. Um, combating fake news because I I feel like I've seen a lot of think pieces about oh these people who believe in such and such a thing are like isolated and um unhinged and psychotic in some kind of way and it's like well if that's your starting point of trying to understand why they think those things what room have you left yourself to be able to combat it and it's the exact same pattern as the conversations about why are people racist is it ignorance or like what is it it's the same thing yeah and that's like essentializing um some form of like lack of knowing the truth into some sort of ableist discourse as well yeah, around like you just you know yeah don't have the capacity to understand um okay so wow i feel like we've been on quite a journey um, <laughs> here and i actually think this is one of the most one of the more complicated topics that we've tried to cover because this binary as you said like it just is seeped into every area of our lives really and like even you know personal relationships like so how much of communication is based on like my perception of what was true and your perception of what was true in this interaction and you know gaslighting into personal level of like telling you that what is not true is true and, and all of that and so I think yeah, I think we could, you know, we can only sort of scratch the surface of this in, in many ways. But I think what we have scratched and what you've helped us sort of uncover there is is really important and really beneficial. And I wondered if for you, like to sort of bring this to a conclusion uh, in some way, I mean, what do you feel is something that we, you would you would suggest or offer or encourage us to take forward in terms of finding maybe a better framework or language to think about information or knowledge outside of the binary of fake news and truth i think it's that movement that you just said outside the binary so to be able to take a step back and take in the perspective of what the conversation is and who the conversation benefits and i think that applies to whether we're talking about um authenticity in like film and tv representations or if we're talking about how universities classify what is critical thinking and what is scholarly thinking um and interpersonal relationships like you mentioned with the truth of who we are as individuals and who we are as a society it is always worth asking who the discourse or the argument or the debate benefits and where you stand to go from it in terms of intellectual paths, creative paths, spiritual paths. Like 
is it an interesting way for you to think? Does it give you hope for the future? Can you imagine some kind of future with it? So just to, as usual, go back to the ghost thing. Um, I think that ghosts can be a symbol of the future. And when a ghost is exercised or the ghost go leaves in some kind of way, you kind of have um, a solving of the problem. And I think in a lot of the examples that we've used over the last hour or so, they're examples that speak to systemic violence. And I think if we can think about who the harm has been done to for our pasts and our presents, it makes for like a more stable future or a future that you would actually want. So to summarize that very long-winded little ramble, just to be able to, I think it's very useful to be able to step back, think about who the argument benefits and who the argument harms. And I think a lot of the time there's a lot of overlap between those three things and I think that's good. I think it's really, really important that conversations are multifaceted, that conversations, there's, that, that you're including the fact that there is more than one truth. I think that is the most important thing I've found to hold on to when we're thinking about the future. And in relation to this particular binary, like what next in this debate or argument or discourse? I think that's such a useful set of tools there because it feels really practical as well. Like I think two questions you know one question about who benefits and, and who who is harmed from this i think that really brings us closer to something and i think also what that leads me to feel is that you know it's a reminder that perhaps the ways that we engage with information themselves need to change because i think sometimes when the ways we're encouraged through the education system to to approach information is like almost in this like competitive um way where like you're 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 trying to get the information that will present you to be the one who knows the most or the cleverest or the the one who understands the best. And I think, you know, this is a very, I think this is also a very gendered form of like using information. I think that's why you kind of have at Oxbridge or whatever, this like real um, valorization of like men debating and like, you know, the most persuasive debate wins. And I think what, what I'm getting at when I'm saying that is that like, there is another way to approach knowledge, which I think is what you're getting at, where it's like, it's not an object that I want to own and like prove to have the best one or the most amount of. Uh, instead, like I understand that all pieces of information require questioning, are uh, are themselves questions. Like the, these are, and I think so, I think one of the things that has helped me to kind of be a bit more critical it, in not in the academic sense necessarily is just to approach information neither as something that is fake or true, but something that simply like exists. And I want to like approach it as evidence, you know, almost as like, as you might kind of in an investigation, like this is a piece of evidence about more about saying more about the person who's saying it or saying more about the society they're in rather than the thing itself. So when someone says immigrants go home, it's not about, well, immigrants are good or they're bad. It's actually like, what does it mean for that person to say it? Why are they saying it? What impacts that whole society? Who benefits? And, and I think, so I think that's a really useful set of tools that you've given us um and and yeah and i think it helps to move away from that binary because it is such a convoluted in a way <laughs> binary and i think even just discussing it proves how it's not really useful like it's just not been it's not felt a helpful way to you know think about things at all and it's it's even made this discussion kind of hard to um you know like organize because it's just like i don't really know what what these really you know big and broad things are that we're talking about so 
thank you. That's really, really helpful. And I, I guess just before I close up, like, is there anything that you want to add um, or anything that you feel like we've missed? Yeah, I guess I just was going to say that I think because it is such a like gigantic conversation, I feel like thank you, first of all, for like wielding it in a way where you kind of moved us through this conversation. And I am really grateful for that. I really do. Um, And I think that that last thing, as you were talking, made me think of um, connection. So like when you see something about this is something that we know about immigrants, um, when you hear that piece of information, I feel like if there's one takeaway from this podcast, it then would be, what is the connection there? What does that connect to what I already know? Because I feel like it's, you know, it's a process. Like knowledge is not a stable entity. It's something that you do. Um, you don't, yeah, you don't just hold your knowledge because then it's, it's kind of useless. So I feel like as you were talking, that's what it made me think of, of like, what, how does this connect to the other, to other things that I know? That's really useful. And I think a knowledge as a process brings, which I enjoy a lot of these podcasts is that it brings it back to, I think, praxis, like that we, I, I hope that most of what we do isn't just like aiming for some end goal, like you say, of like owning knowledge, but, but what are we doing in the world? And I think, what you, you know, just, just to reflect on final point, I think what you were saying about do, does this feed into like the future I want to build? Does this give me hope or not? I think that's also such an important set of questions because, you know, realistically, I know what I want to do with my time on earth is like actually contribute to some sort of, um, safer, more just, you know, a, a more livable world essentially. Right. And I think that does require, like, I'm only looking for the things that will contribute to that. And so that, that I think helps also having some sort of direction to move through all the bits of information that we see. Um, so that, yeah, I just feel like that reflection on the future is a really nice thing to, to, to have that you've given us as well. Um, so thank you so much uh, for contributing all this time and uh, the sort of, um, the, yeah, having to grapple with such a um, interesting binary. And I, I'm definitely going to be taking taking seriously your notion of the ghost. And I really <laughs> like that imagery. So thank you for that. Um, but yeah, it's been a pleasure to host you. And, um, you know, maybe sometime in the future, we'll have you back to break another binary. Oh, of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Breaking Binaries. I hope you, like me, can take something from our guest this week. Look out for episodes fortnightly, and if you enjoy, please share. The music you've been hearing is made by an old high school friend that came through, so shout out to Violence Jack at, at GetViolenceJackOnline. Thanks to all my guests for chatting to me every week and helping us think a little more critically, and I hope, humbly, about our world. I do believe that part of the way we transform the world is by transforming the ways we think about it. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Sahima Mansul Khan. Bye.